0: Glory.
1: Greetings! Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answer to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. This is a big way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, please do so. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a
2: priest. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well, Kirk. What's new in the Shire? Well, actually, I know what's new, and I am eagerly anticipating several updates, but um, the first one I wanna hear is, you got a new shower. Let's hear about it. You broke it in? (laughs) No, 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 no. You haven't we're, use it yet? We, no.
1: Uh, grout has to, sir, grout has to cure for seven days. Seven before days? It can be exposed to the type of moisture that a shower creates.
2: Absolutely. So you've no, got this no, no. beautiful, like, and you guys didn't say, oh, we're going to have, like, this fiberglass insert. You didn't say, we're going to tile one corner. Or you, you didn't say, oh, we're going to tile like a strip in the middle between, like, you know, they have those sheets of tiles. You did tile by tile, what, like two by, no, one by four tiles?
1: Uh, They're not one by four. Yeah, I mean, it's probably hard to get a sense of scale with the pictures that we've sent you. Um, They are, what, two by six? They're six in six okay. inches long. I, I don't know how I'll tell you. They're like the standard subway tiles. That's what's trendy right now, right? So it's probably going to date our bathroom uh, in like <laughs> twenty so years. Twenty twenty one. People are like, "Oh yeah. my
2: gosh, that was like so the twenties or whatever, or now, so Kirk, the teens." Yeah. Is is this kind of the final functional piece in the bathroom? I know you have trim and things like that, but is this the like is your new vanity and all that stuff? And oh new- yeah yeah,
1: all that's in all we'd, 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 I mean, this was this was the impetus in the first place was the fact that our our, our main bathroom um, on our main floor had one sink, which you know we've got four kids, and uh, and
2: and and Kim spends significant time hang in on. the bathroom in the morning. And hang hang on before you throw your wife under the bus here. Not for her Significant the time in the in the bathroom. No, she does self care. You're, you know? <laughs> you're saying the impetus. You're saying the impetus. Was the sink and not the, the non waterproof tile in the shower that you stopped using? <laughs> there were multiple coinciding. Impeti- okay. 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 Impeti- there was impetigo. Okay. I got it.
1: <laughs> Plural so, for impetus.
2: So you've got to wait a week. Um, yeah. So, uh, next week's show, we, we will reveal that the shower head you chose does not have the required pressure. No, I'm kidding. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, so we got the two sinks going, which is great. That's been a revelation. So, Kim can kind of park her gear on the one side and plug in the curling iron and the blow dryer. And then other kids can come and go and wash their face and brush their teeth and do their hair and whatever without people getting grouchy at each other and like trying to pass by. And it's so great. So, question
2: um, Yes. Are your children allowed to use this sink to brush their teeth? Or is that downstairs? Answer. Yes, with an asterisk. <laughs> um,
1: but the the downstairs bathroom is their bathroom, the one they use. It's it's great bathroom. It's functional. It's all their stuff is there. So upstairs, sink number Daddy sink is earmarked for child overflow.
2: Okay. Right. So it's okay. this
1: this it's the spillway.
2: <laughs> because uh, I I laugh at a lot of things. I find many things in life humorous, Kirk. I had a friend recently who mentioned that uh, she had done so much yard work and her back hurt so badly that um, it hurt her back when she bent over to brush her teeth. And I was like, what? Like, and this is, this was, um, in, in a direct message with other people in it, and in the and way I'm that like, life works, did that happen to you? Like three days later? No, no, no. I'm just <laughs> like bend over to brush your teeth. Like, what's this toothbrushing method that requires bending over? Like, <laughs> I, like your your teeth are right there. Um, and then oh, someone... right, right. Oh, you're
1: you're you're questioning her bodily
2: position. Yes, yes. yes. Someone pointed out um, that that non Neanderthals bend over to spit in the sink, so as to make sure that uh, toothpaste doesn't end up on the mirror. And I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense. I guess, you know, it's nice to have one mirror in the house that isn't just flaked with, like, toothpaste residue from boys standing up and spitting from as high as they possibly can.
1: See, I thought I thought the point was from across the room to create <laughs> a great soaring arch <laughs> of youth of toothpaste and saliva and try to get it to land in uh, vaguely in the sink.
2: From say, I mean, it helps, away. honestly, as you age, when you look in the mirror, if there's... Like, you just don't see those lines in the crow's feet if there's a lot That's of, right. if, if the mirror's not clean. So, okay. So, uh, other thing that happened in the Shire, Kirk, is little Miss Daphne got uh, oh. first. Right. What did she yes. get to do for the first time?
1: Yes, we signed her up for skating. And yesterday was her first uh, her first skating lesson, uh, which was which was impossibly cute. So, these are three and four-year-olds. Um, that were skating and like the first lesson literally within the first 30 seconds of getting there they had the kids they're like okay sit down now stand up
0: Mm.
1: no this is how you stand up on your skate right because like a lot of what they were going to be doing was like getting up off the ice it was so interesting i'm like oh that makes so much sense that's brilliant and then they had them like show me your skating hands which like so holding their hands wide creating a sense of balance um it was really interesting and it's it's funny to watch uh, the growth the growth curve on skating is very simple at what point do you realize oh this is not walking right so right. some of the kids for the entire lesson were just like substitute walking yeah. and then there are other kids who were the the vague thought was starting to worm its way into their frontal cortex that Wait a minute! This whole walking motion is rather ineffective, <laughs> and maybe I need to try creating other forces, forms of thrust. <laughs> and you could see and you, some of the you turn
2: your skate ever so slightly, and you suddenly have an edge you could push off of. It's a
1: revelation! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Daphne was on the cusp of that several times. You could see her kind of gliding a little bit, but there's still the sense of like picking up, picking up her feet. Like she's still kind of a walking motion. But the the drills were super interesting. So. Um, in order to create balance, a bunch of the drills for little kids was like throwing little like cushy balls on the ice or rings on the ice and having kids get the rings, which involves like bending down, right? So getting low, it tricks the kids into bending their knees and maintaining their balance and leaning forward because the kids were constantly comically suddenly windmilling their arms, you know, and then falling backwards, right? Which another smart thing that that has changed since you and i started skating is helmets were mandatory (laughs)
0: Mm, which i know
1: like i never wore a helmet ever 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 learning how to skate like that was something that you wore if if you were on an actual hockey team in a league if you're getting checked yeah 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 yeah. otherwise i'd be I, i remember watching video of a friend of ours um uh on vhs (laughs) and and, uh i was like oh yeah you gotta wear a helmet and do you remember um the helmets that they had to wear back then they had these thick dense like probably like 14 by 14 bars like i'm like how can they even see do you remember that the youth (laughs) hockey youth hockey helmets with the with the bars and now they probably all have plexiglass but yeah so they had them they had them like pick up these cushy balls and and daphne was cute and Every 37 seconds or so, she would suddenly unaccountably windmill her arms violently and then fall back and, like, stand up properly. Just
2: in the two videos that you shared, Kirk, uh, it it was – I mean, she's so small and so skinny and so light. Yes. Because, like, when I saw her fall, like, hard (laughs) on her butt, I was like, oh, no, like, she's going to be crying. But she just popped right up, fell hard on her butt, popped right up. Yeah
1: yeah it was and, so great
2: and that's the thing it's funny like there's some people who are wary about going on on ice and, and for me it's like ice is way more forgiving than rollerblading you know Roller yes. if, you, if you fall like that ground is hard and it'll it'll, it'll rip up your skin yep, where yep, yep, yep. ice you know it, it's it's hard but like i don't know yeah you, you hit it and you slide and it's fine um what was i gonna say oh she uh here's
1: the the other thing that's uh there was that was funny it was clear that she was getting into it was she halfway through ice is cold right ice is ice she yeah. took her mit- took her mittens off um mm. uh, because you know what she's like getting she's serious getting serious yeah and uh, i mean i mean you remember how like how warm you get playing hockey and like at some point you oh, yeah. start shedding shedding layers um uh, kirk kirk you are far
2: off. you are far wiser than i how's that like actually giving your kids
1: lessons <laughs> oh, there is there is a devious, um, long, there, I, I'm like uh, Kevin Feige planning out the Marvel movies, like six movies in advance. There's a, there's a lengthy life plan here. And it's preempt um, when she asks, Dad, Daddy, um, can, I, can I join dance? Or Daddy, can I join uh, gymnastics? Or Daddy, can I join cheerleading? I hope to be able to say, oh, here's the thing. I mean, uh, you'd you'd have to you'd have to you have to choose between that and uh, figure skating. Here's my thought: if we're if we're gonna if I'm gonna be you know a dad that's going to something girly, um, it's gonna be something that I can do with her. I can skate. So that's so, so that's you're, my thought. You're, you're, and, and you're
2: gonna you're gonna learn the lutzes and the <laughs> and <laughs> something you could do with her. The <laughs> lutzes and the I I toe loop. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the names of the things. Yeah, but you said uh, so.
1: So you said ice is far more forgiving than 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 the ground. This is, I rem- remember now what I was going to say. Um, not only is it far f- more forgiving than the ground, like ice skating versus uh, um, rollerblading, but there's just so much friction. Like when you're rollerblading, you can't just coast, right? Or, or soar. I just feel like you go slower and... Um, you're slowing down, and the vibration is real and teeth chattering unless you're not on a perfectly smooth surface. And ice is just smooth and almost frictionless if your if your skates are newly sharpened. And the speed is just intoxicating. Um, uh, when and 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 if you have you know fresh ice, Iris is very excited. I'm guessing. Do you have I'm a guess, delivery
2: of Do you have a delivery of yeast, Kirk? Yes,
1: my second pound of yeast. Um, so far as I can tell, it's just a car that just stopped by our house. You're so, hang on. She's usually so good. Okay, we're back. No, here's what it was. Um, a car pulled over, unaccountably dropped a guy off, not from our neighborhood, I don't recognize him, and he just like got out of the car and walked down the hill. (laughs) And she was like, hey, you, I see you walking. So that's my interpretation of her barking.
2: All right. Yeah,
1: I so I forget what I was just saying about ice, and it probably doesn't matter. So we well, should... I mean,
2: so you mentioned how like for- forgiveness and and um falling to the ground, much like a seed falls to the ground, much like that. Mm-hmm. Today's gospel comes from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and it and said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out and i when i am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die the word of the lord thanks be to god so this gospel comes from the 12th chapter of john and so it's it's important to to look at what uh, the way that John's gospel is structured, it's it's interesting that uh, we've mentioned before how some people try to demystify Jesus and turn Christianity into a series of moral instructions. And John wants to crumple up that idea and throw it in the trash. Because in John chapter 12, we see the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the, the last week of Jesus' life begin. So uh, from 12 on is just the last li- uh, the last um, week of his, of his life. And it's interesting, in John chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters uh, in all of scripture, uh, that's where we have the famous, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Um, and why did Jesus weep? It's not just because his friend Lazarus, Lazarus died. Lazarus it wasn't died. just because Lazarus died. Um, I think that he wept because of all of sorrow and all the deaths. Weltschmerz, um, bless you.
1: <laughs> it's the German concept of like world's world weariness, mm. like just feeling the the entire weight of the world. Anyhow, go on.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, I don't know if about the entire weight of the world, but just sorrow at the right. consequence yeah, yeah. of sin for the world. Okay, weltschmerz. <laughs> yes. Um, th- this this idea, um, because like, yeah, he was sad that Lazarus died, but he also knew that he's gonna raise him like the next second, right? Um, so it, it seems kind of silly, um, to, to weep that, but he, he wept, I think, um, the fact that Lazarus would, would die in an, another day and would be separated from the ones who loved him and things like that. So anyway, uh, and again, this, th- that's a significant final sign here. Um, because Jesus is going to die and be raised that he is the resurrection and the life. And so in, in chapter 12, we see this, this turn in the gospel. Um, and, uh, so the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, have Jesus in the garden, uh, one of them have, having him sweating like blood, and uh, just um, dreading, struggling with what, what is to come. And it was kind of interesting to me, just last night uh, at a book club online, and we were discussing Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black, and... Uh, the particular chapter we were looking at was, was looking at black and brown people in scripture that that, that we don't have to be like, well, God is for black people too. Like they're in scripture. I mean, we see uh, not just the Ethiopian eunuch, but we see uh, all sorts of things in Egypt occurring um, uh, both with Joseph and um, early on in, in the church, we see black and brown people, people of color, um as part of God's people, it's not that, oh, isn't it great when there's no Jew or Greek and we have this like colorblind blandness? It's like, no, the, the promises of God not only forever are, are for, for this uh, beautiful tapestry of, 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 of all peoples and all nations, but um, from early on, we, we see on the day of Pentecost, many people gathered and many people hear and many people believe. And, uh, we started talking about just depictions of Jesus. And one of the people in our group, uh, was, uh, raised in, in Kenya. And, uh, living in Kenya, um, and he's a black man. And, and I asked, like, the pictures you saw of Jesus, was he, was he black? He's like, oh yeah. Like not just black, but like black, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Uh, because it's my understanding that this is really, really common for all cultures to depict Jesus as like looking like them. And why do you suppose that is? It's because like God, like Jesus is God among us. Right. So it's, it's perfectly normal to depict him as looking like one of us. Um, Like not just one of us humans, but like one of us that like is, we can connect with, like we see Jesus and he's human. Right. And this is a very human side we're seeing of Jesus of like he knew his path and whether it's in a synoptic in the garden or here, when he became troubled at what was to come, this is a very human side of him anticipating um, his suffering. Um, and of course his suffering in John is connected. Um, when we say his glorification, that means his suffering and death and resurrection. There is no like his glorification is his, is, is his suffering and death. So th- that's something to remember um and so all throughout john we see um him say the hour has not yet come the hour has not yet come here we see now it has arrived right and so we see that uh we see uh this this word that not only is the hour come he 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 gives a very quick metaphor for this he says Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I wonder if this is just based on um, limited scientific knowledge. Like
0: hmm.
2: I'm struggling with like, how do I tell this to kids um, on Sunday? Cause we all know that seeds don't die, but um, hmm. in some sense, there's this, oh, it goes underground and that is buried. And so maybe, maybe when we think about that with baptism, it's like being buried with Christ and his death. And then we're raised up, but um, a seed much like a seed that is buried and kind of left for dead, Um, Jesus is showing like the the way that he is going to lose his life that um, he's going to go away and it's going to seem like he died, but then just be buried (laughs) and be buried and, and, and just like (laughs) Like, a plant rises from from the ground he is going to rise. And so he's teaching him about this and these things, I'm sure. How many times do you think the disciples slapped their foreheads following the resurrection? That's what he was meaning. Like, that's what he uh, meant when he said this. Well,
1: John makes a point um, throughout saying, and they remembered when Mm -hmm. he had said blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yes, certainly. Certainly, it's so notable that John remembers different times when they finally connected dots.
2: Yeah, Because clearly, like, no one understood this, you know, at, at the time. Like, this was just something that was very difficult to, to understand, even as he was, in very clear words, talking about his death and resurrection. Uh, and, and finally, I want to say uh, something about verse 25, because um, this may be a confusing verse. Whoever oh, loves I, I his love life that verse. Yeah. loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Oh, yeah. I mean... You love it. Uh, I, I could see how it would be difficult to understand uh, if you weren't somebody who understands the theology of the cross, right? And so uh, when we have this, when we say the word hate, that is a contrast between love and hate. So um, if you cling to the this life and the things of this life, as opposed to seeking the path of the cross, which, which we have been talking about Kirk week in and week out. And, Mm. and, uh, it's not that I feel tired of talking about it and like how, what's a new way I could talk about this where it doesn't feel like I'm just being repetitive of, of Jesus teaching that the way, um, that his way, if anyone would follow me, he must pick up his cross, right? If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. So much of what we've been doing this Lent is, is based on this idea of, of, uh, sort of despising the things of this world, um, of gi- of giving them up, and following Jesus. That the, the the path of Jesus is the path of the cross. So much of what we've been, been studying, that many of the gospel lessons have had that focus, and he is reaffirming that here. So it's not about like we don't have to hate life. Uh, what he's saying is is that um, to love Jesus is to give up some sort of worldly ambitions to yeah. say that, that, that um, to live a satisfying and good life looks different for somebody who's pursuing the way of the cross. And, and so I, I think I'll just not elaborate and see if, if you have a clever or articulate <laughs> way of, of explaining what that means to, to like choose the way of the cross as opposed to loving this life.
1: See now, why did you have to go and set the, set the bar high and <laughs> set expectations? Yeah, I would say uh, that with the way that uh, that Jesus says this, I mean, there's there's an ecumenical, almost uh, a- across-world religions. I'm not making a I'm not making a squishy point, like a like a liberal squishy point that all religions are ultimately getting at the same thing. But there's a common grace sense to this, that um, release from the world, that it's important to release the world. Um, that chasing desires uh, has 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 a real futility to it. I mean, and isn't this at the heart of of the, the, the cliched midlife crisis and it's a cliche because it happens enough because it's 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 a universal aspect of of human aging and coming to terms with our mortality right and our failing body is um that 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 chasing our desires is killing us right and so if you're looking for a sense of ultimacy a sense of identity a sense of purpose um, you will not find that in 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 fulfilling uh, in, in you will not find that fulfillment in this world, right? In in achievement in this world, in pleasure in this world, in status in this world, um, those things are ultimately all um, leaky vessels. And you think that you've um, you you have a cup that's full of something when you finally grasp onto it, and you do not, right? And so I think there's there's actually Christopher. It's interesting that you said this can be diff- a difficult verse to hear. I actually think that there's um it can it can be the 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 beginning of dialogue mm-hmm. in that respect. Does that make sense? Um, I, I think I've made this point before. I mean, it certainly is a common point that we have with with Buddhism. We both have uh, an aesthetic sense that um, that that our desires are killing us. And um, we, we pray to God for release from our desires rather than kind of taking an inward path that will hope uh, in in hope of release from them.
2: Right. Right. But there, there, there is a sense of hating this world that, that is uh, the Buddhists embrace that we don't, where we say like, we say the things of this world are good, right. But, but, but on this side of the grave that like um, whether it's, you know, uh rest is good but sloth yeah. is not yes um drink is good but drunkenness is not um you know take it with anything um uh security financial security is good but avarice is not um and in fact uh it keeps us uh from a solid faith because we we trust in ourselves and not in the lord um who provides so so um we don't detach ourselves from the world in in, in the same way as, as buddhist because we believe that god made the world and cr- called it good right and and our our um afterlife is one of physicality of bodily resurrection of 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 uh we will no longer work by the sweat of our brow but there will be work and we will there will be vineyards and there will be i mean the imagery we see Mm -hmm. in scripture of of the next life is a beautiful one of of physicality right a holy feasting yeah yeah as isaiah says yeah and that's an important it's not like oh (laughs) it won't be great when when we don't have to eat anymore no there'll be feasting in uh, you know uh in the next life
1: yeah, no, that's an important point, and I'm glad you make it. You made it because um, th- that is just a touch point with Buddhism. I'm just making an academic right. point. Um, where, yeah. Whereas Buddhism believes that this world is illusory; it's right. not even here. <laughs> well, right, so, in, in, and, and that's believe, why I wanted to
2: clarify yes. when we talk about like hating this world, it's different than than the Buddhists, right? Yeah, we know we are
1: realists. We don't believe this world is illusory. We don't believe it's a matter of opinion. We are philosophical realists. This is matter. Matter was created by God. It was spoken into being. Now, interestingly, we believe it's less real than the world to come, which will be perfected and the truer form that was always um, always in the mind of God, lying behind this world. Um, and that'll be great when that gets there. But in the meantime, um, yes, this world has fallen. It's full of sin and death. It's a, va- it's a veil of tears. And and that, that that too is a uniquely Christian point, right? That, that we hold those two things in tension. They're both true. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ver- interesting discussion in verse 25. Uh, Christopher, verse uh, 32. This is a, a point that John makes several times, isn't it? Um, he says here, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Um, elsewhere, he draws a parallel with Moses lifting up the snake in the desert. Uh, and that's when... in, in John three, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is something, I mean, Jesus must have, ta- must have taught about this multiple times, uses this image um, of being lifted up so that his disciples would, as you say, after the crucifixion mm. say, yes he kept saying this weird thing about gazing upon. Yeah. And uh, so it's interesting. He, mu- he must, he must've talked about this and, and taught about this multiple times um, because he, he does, does say that earlier as well. I'm um, also a verse previously, Christopher, John 31. Kirk, I,
2: I, I'm sorry. I, I want to interrupt you because I want to talk a little bit about John three. Uh, a great it's, chapter. It's, we were just it's, there. Were we? Yeah. Okay. Anyhow, <laughs> go ahead. We're, weren't we in John 2? Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, but like, so, so there's an old, te- the, what Jesus is talking about there is an Old Testament story of, of how like the Israelites were in the wilderness receiving magical bread from heaven every day. God was providing in the wilderness for their needs, right? Mm-hmm. And what did they do? They complained. <laughs> right. Like, they're like boohoo, like uh this we're, we're kind of tired of this all-you can eat buffet. And they didn't
1: they didn't trust, they they, they the would store it, yeah. they like hoard it, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: And so God uh sent snakes in the camp, and um some people were bitten. And um, do you remember the cure? Uh they had to gaze upon the bronze serpent. They lifted up a snake, um, and people gazed on the thing that and so so the connection here is that the thing that we think will bring us death, in fact, brings us life. Gazing upon the, the serpent. And and so Jesus was talking about the cross. The thing that we think of as bringing death, in fact, is the pathway to life. So this is the really cool teaching that Jesus offers there that, that has this connecting point to what we're talking about today. Is that the, the way of the cross is the way of life, even though it appears to be the way of death.
1: Yes. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's I mean just just for the for the listener, that's just before the famous verse John three sixteen, mm-hmm. uh, for God so loved the world. Um, in verse fourteen, he says, "And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him
2: may have eternal life." For God so loved the world, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. And this lifting up is is ta- referring to. Being lifted up on the cross. On the cross. Which we see here, yeah. On and when cross. I am lifted up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, John
1: 30, uh, I'm sorry. not. I keep saying John 31. John twelve thirty one uh, is interesting. And that's probably an easy verse to pass over, Christopher. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I sometimes think that the American church um doesn't know what to do with holy week specifically with good friday Mm. if it even marks it at all um and uh you know it's easter In, in in a lot of american churches it's easter already right yeah um yeah i mean on palm sunday they'll be having easter egg hunts and and that i mean that's that's fine um but i think it's really important uh to recognize that it's not just easter sunday that's a victory um that's a victory that that is a foretaste that is a a promise of our resurrection um, that the, the power at Easter is the same power that will resurrect us on the last day. But it's important to notice that um, that Good Friday is a victory too. And this is a drum I'm starting to bang is we don't call it um, Holy hmm. Friday. We don't call it a somber Friday or solemn Friday. We call it Good Friday because it is good and it is a victory. Um, and we see this here now will the ruler of this world be cast out. God's victory, yes, he will come in glory. Yes, he will come with a crown. Yes, every knee will bow before him, all in due time. But God's victory looks like a bleeding man on a cross, suffering naked, cold in humiliation, mocked and scorned and beaten. Um, and that is how the ruler Of this world will be cast out Uh, when you look at the way that Jesus is tempted in the in the wilderness in the synoptic gospels right with all the kingdoms of this world with um, satisfaction of the flesh right in in eating the bread when he's hungry. um, And in being saved by uh, by the angels um, in in calling in sort of cosmic power right calling on these angels. um, uh, The one thing Satan will let him have anything but do not spill your veins, mm. right? Uh, <laughs> some Christians don't understand, but Satan understood what constituted cosmic victory over Satan and death. And it is the bleeding God-man on the cross. Uh, and so this is a drum I'm kind of beating in my own personal life, in Sunday school, kind of with my family and, and here with you, um, is that Good Friday is good. And I hope as it approaches I hope you're in church. I hope kind of this is in your prayers and in your scripture reading. Um, It is a victory. It is a lovely, beautiful victory. Any other thoughts do you have on this uh, really remarkable and rich
2: chapter, Christopher? I I think we should transition after that great climax. Uh,
1: Absolutely. On Sunday, which, uh, will re- which will be the fifth Sunday in Lent, Sunday happens to fall on, the feast day, of one of my great heroes of the faith, Christopher, Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he was the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, advisor to the English kings Henry VIII and Edward VI. Um, He was, uh, he put in the English Bible in the parish churches. He drew up the Book of Common Prayer. He uh, wrote the first English speaking, English speaking, I I guess liturgy can't speak English. The first liturgy in English um, called the Great Litany that remains in use today. Um, He was denounced by the Catholic Queen Mary I for promoting Protestantism, tried and convicted of heresy, and burnt at the stake, and died on March twenty first, fifteen fifty six, in Oxford, and so we rightly um, celebrate his martyrdom, and uh, and and observe his his day. Then, um, Christopher, uh, you and I had had kind of exchanged notes on kind how we wanted to talk about Thomas Cranmer, and we uh, we 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 said we didn't want to do an information dump. Um, just kind of uh, reflect personally and how he's influenced us, and uh, and talk. I, I'm guessing a little bit about um, kind of the prayer book and particular passages that he has penned in the prayer book that have influenced us and been meaningful to us. But we should we should provide just uh, the most basic of background.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so we're talking the English Reformation, and Christopher, uh, as as you are so talented in doing, uh, please interrupt me at any point in time. <laughs> um, the English Reformation really kicks off um, when Henry VIII becomes convicted that he has committed bigamy and um, is seeking an annulment uh, from his wife Catherine of Aragon, um, who was who was unable to produce a son for him, produced a, a daughter, um, queen who ultimately became Queen Mary, and uh, uh, Henry VIII felt like he had been cursed by God and the Pope. Uh, was perhaps enjoying this a little too much, and it had, uh, there there were also European allies that were at stake, and he was loath to provide an annulment. And um, Henry VIII leaned on his newly appointed Archbishop, Thomas Kramer, whom Henry VIII probably was unaware. Hmm. Um, Archbishop Kramer was a closet evangelical. And uh, evangelical meant uh, something very different than what it means now, which means that um, he had he had become curious and catechized in uh, the budding Lutheran Reformation. You see, Christopher, he had been sent as part of an envoy in 1532 to Germany as an ambassador to Charles V, who was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at that time. Um, and he was, had been instructed to establish contact and diplomatic ties with Lutheran princes. Um, they were forever seeking kind of an alliance uh, with um. With, uh, the, with the Holy Roman Empire, and that, that, that's a different story, but that didn't quite pan out. And anyhow, he made the acquaintance of a, a, a Lutheran reformer, Andreas Osiander, uh, who, who was maybe kind of a, an old Lutheran. His theological position would probably be somewhere in between um, the old Orthodoxy and, and Luther, um, but he had Cramer's cautious temperament, and they became deep friends. And also, he had a pretty young niece, Margaret. And guess what? Father Thomas did Christopher while he was in Germany. He secretly married her. <laughs> and so, when he was, uh, when uh, William Warham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, died in August, uh, Thomas Cranmer was nominated and um, and consecrated as. The Archbishop of Canterbury, and he brought with him, in secret, his wife. <laughs> so he had already arrived as sort of a closet evangelical, a, a, a purveyor of, of the new, um, the new teaching. He was a, a great scholar, um, a cautious temperament, um, and very skillfully guided the mercurial uh, Henry VIII. Mm. Um, not not just mercurial, in in some ways, maybe psychotic. I we shouldn't say that. Um, well, certainly later, Hot-tempered, yeah, yeah. hot-tempered yeah. Henry yeah. VIII. Guided him quite skillfully um, through a, a bunch of things. For, first of all, um, all of the legal litigation around the divorce, um, uh, independence of the Church of England from uh, the Roman Church, setting it on firm theological footing, um, getting all those, all those documents, the articles of religion, all that stuff, um, that, that passed through uh, convocation, approved by parliament. Um, and, uh, and the Church of England, by the time Henry dies, is on firm footing. Um, Henry VIII dies and his son, Edward, becomes king of England. And um, Henry, uh, Thomas Cranmer recognizes this is my moment. Um, and there was the hope that Edward be- would become kind of a King Josiah. And Thomas Kramer um, really pushes through, a, he pushes through a new prayer book. The 1552 prayer book is an explicitly Protestant prayer book, whereas the 1549 is sort of moving, making noises in that direction. 1552 is very reformed, very evangelical. Um, and then something happens to Kirk, <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you here. Interrupt me.
2: Yeah. So, so if, if you're not Anglican, the significance of, of a prayer book um, issuing a prayer book may not seem all that significant. Yes. Uh, but, but, um, I think we've mentioned this term before, like our, our tradition is one of Lex or Lex credendi of our theology is our worship. So like, what is it that we believe? Well, it's in the prayer book. It's in the liturgy, uh, that, um, what we do on a Sunday morning, like that's what we believe the things that we recite the things that we say the things that we have have um repeated to us by by the priest though that that is our 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 theology and so issuing a prayer book that's normative that that that, that when the church gathers that is the thing that is the liturgy that's done is a very significant thing and so even the 1549 prayer book was was pretty just kind of even the fact that there are, there's an English liturgy rather than, you know, so that people are, the lay people are participating and understanding, but also, um, uh, the 1552 one being, like you said, more, more reformed, uh, very significant in, in the reformation. It's not just like he published a thing. It's like, no, like this is like the new worship and theology of the church of England.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, Well said. And, and good point. Um, in July, in the summer of 1553, uh, a year after uh, the complicated rollout of the new prayer book, there were riots in Cornwall and in the West Country. It wasn't uniformly accepted, um, but it was enforced. And, um, and over the course of decades, it, it took and became beloved. Um, in any case, uh, Edward dies, the young Edward dies. And uh, Henry had had a, um, a daughter, Mary, who was uh, the daughter by Catherine of Aragon, And she had retained the old religion, the old faith, and she slams on the brakes quite dramatically, um, sets up trials for everybody who had begun to publicly fly a Protestant flag, so to speak. And uh, they're... they're, Got a nickname for that. (laughs) What's that? She
2: got a nickname for that.
1: Bloody Mary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, that was that was how you treated heresy on the Protestant or Catholic side. Like yeah. we, we burned our share of Catholics too. Um, and anyhow, Cranmer's uh, trial um, was technically for treason, but that was a, that was a pretext. Um, she was it, it getting rid of, she was cleaning house so that she could put in conservative uh, uh, clerics back into these bishoprics um, and back into Lambeth Palace and for, as Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, Kramer's trial, if we get to it, if we get to it, I'll, um, I'll at the very end, Christopher will, will end. If we have time, I'll read a passage from Dermot McCullough's magisterial biography of it. But I, I kind of want to throw stuff up out there so we can kind of talk about him and his influence on, on you and me. Um, he had, how human is his ending, Christopher? He had, mm-hmm. um, under trial, um, he goes under trial for, for treason and for heresy, and he renounces. Uh, it's, it was a ceremony carefully designed to humiliate him and degrade him, um, and, uh, and it had its desired effect. He renounced um, all his writings, and um, so at, at the very end of his life, as he is put on the burning pyre in Oxford, he, uh, he sticks his hand into the flames and he burns his right hand first. And, uh, and we, can, we can read this later. He says, insofar as this hand um, denied, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to paraphrase it. We'll, I'll read it actually when we get there. Um, but at the very end, the last day, he, uh, he very dramatically renounces his renunciation. He goes back and he says, actually, I meant all of it. Um, I meant the entire Reformation. I meant the litany. I meant the Book of Common Prayer. I meant the independence of the Church of England from uh, the Bishop of Rome. I meant all of it. And I pray God forgive me for being a coward. Um, so one of the more dramatic uh, moments in, in the history of English speaking Christianity, Christopher. One of the more inspiring moments because mm-hmm. of its kind of it, it, it's a very human story. Um, but Christopher, uh, I, I'm, I'm monologuing as I'm want to want to do. Um, what are what are your thoughts every to every uh, every year when March twenty first rolls around?
2: That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> your thoughts on Thomas Cranmer? What what do you appreciate about him?
2: Uh, I, I mean, I just remember reading Alan Jacobs' wonderful biography of the book Oh, of, so book good. Book of Common Prayer. Yes. Um, and I just remember distinctly, I don't remember a lot about the book because I have a terrible memory, but the, the opening of, of the book talking about the, the Bishop's palace in Croydon, um, how the, he had the greatest library in the world. Mm-hmm. Like he had these, he, he had um, the most remarkable resources at his disposal to go back um, to the early church and construct this new liturgy for, for the English speaking church. And I, um, The significance of of bringing the liturgy um to the people in the vernacular is 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 utterly remarkable as as a value um and and it's it's interesting um how how we take that for granted that everybody understands Mm -hmm. that everybody can participate and understand what's going on and and how how just how big of a, a paradigm shift that was, um, that that even some of the priests um, weren't all that literate at the time. Yes. So as far as just a, just a reawakening and revival in in the country of of people being able to hear the pure word of God, and that was fought quite that was fought quite bitterly.
1: It wasn't immediately evident to everybody, not not even to most people, that that was a that was a good thing. Um, there was there was a prevailing sense that uh, that was for the learned um or that it was too complicated uh and uh you would end up drawing kind of wrong or misleading conclusions
2: um we've talked in the past kirk about how um people didn't really know what was going on they wouldn't necessarily be there for the whole mass um this prior to you know the english reformation how like all they knew was that when when the host was elevated at the consecration um uh, during communion that that was a significant time right (laughs) And so well, they, they didn't even necessarily participate in communion. And so, um, so putting the, 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 liturgy in English and, and also like returning the laity to participating in, in communion and frequent communion was a huge thing that, that, that uh, the pre-reformation period was a period of great superstition of great fear. Um, and many people operated by fear and, and Many churches had communion maybe twice a year. and even then, sometimes only the clergy would take communion. And so it's like, no, like the 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 word and sacrament are for the people. And and I mean, that that was uh, integral to the English reformation. and and we should not neglect the importance of that. that that the people ought to receive regularly word and sacrament. not watch. And so this is an interesting, uh, difference between the church of England and, and, um, the, the, the Roman church is, is that, um, Roman priests oftentimes will do mass apart from consumption of, of mass that, that they will say a mass for, for this reason or for that reason. Uh, and, um, wherein in, in the Anglican church, it is, um, the Mass is consecrated, well, we don't call it Mass, but like Holy Communion is consecrated for, for, um, for people, um, for consumption, um, for you and I to receive the, the, the means of grace. In and, fact,
1: and, so- uh, and you may know the number in the rubrics, um, Holy Communion, you're, you're to cancel it. You're not to celebrate it if there are fewer than a certain number of people present. Um, the, ho- the whole point is it's an essentially, I, we talked about this last week, it's an essentially unitive act. It binds us together. And so, what are we doing? Let's do it next time if we don't have a critical mass, right? Yeah, a critical mass—that's a great liturgical uh, double entendre.
2: Yes. And hey Kirk, and uh, I, I, since I'm talking, I'll just keep talking. Uh, well, <laughs> That'll is- say
1: that on your tombstone. <laughs> That's, that's, that's,
2: a, that's, just a, that's a good one, but I've got it in my mind. I could write it down and bring it up later. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it now. Cause it's on my mind. Say uh, it. There, there's so much, and I'm sure you'll be able to identify many of these things because you have a far better memory than me. And this is fresh for you. There's so many things that are common, commonly known, widely known outside of the church mm. that are Cranmer's words. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the, the ones that, that leap to my mind are in the wedding liturgy. Dearly um, beloved. Well, that, that starting a dearly beloved, but, um, uh, in, in, uh, and I'm trying to remember if, if this is the, the, the vows or, or the, the blessing anyway, um, to love and to cherish. Yes. So in, in, in the marital liturgy, like there are all these, he like, added that, that did not that. exist in the medieval liturgy. Nope. That's what I that's what i that's what i'm saying that's exactly <laughs> the point but thank you for <laughs> clarifying. um is that like the, the whole liturgy is really good and, and really instructive and kirk it is our theology right it's yes. our liturgy is our theology um but inserting into all of these like hard things in sickness and mm-hmm. um and in health and forsaking all others but but also also to love and to cherish that like marriage is not just this long slog, but there is like, there is a beautiful part of it that's, that's cherishing one another throughout all our days. So yeah, we, we're vowing to do some very difficult things. We're vowing fidelity in the hardest of times, but also those, that language to love and to cherish. Those are Cranmer's words that he, so, so yes, he, he um, synthesized a lot of old liturgies, but he also added some really beautiful stuff that has become universal
1: yeah uh that's christopher that's that's worth that's worth reading that because he he penned that out of he it, it's it's enough to say that he um all right let me just read this he what, what he did was uh, was enough of a departure from words are hard <laughs> words are hard <laughs> What he did was enough of a departure that we can say that he penned the opening to, uh, to the solemnization of holy matrimony, which is what the, the old marriage service was called. Solemnization of matrimony. All right. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency dignifying, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee, and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised nor taken in hand, unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, to satisfy man's carnal lusts and appetite. Like Bruce, beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. Which causes, you might ask? I just, that was might me editorializing. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up yeah. in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of his holy name. Second, it was to be ordained for a remedy against sin. Third, and then this is what you're getting at, Christopher. This is new thing, new thing, right? It was ordained for the mutual society help and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. Yeah, it's lovely, right? Uh, yeah, yeah so- and so
2: the part that I was talking about was the vow, which I will read from from the 2019 prayer book, which okay. is, um, so in the name of God, I take you to be my wife, This is, you know. Um, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death, according to God's holy word. This is my solemn vow. So and it's, thereto it's I pledge
1: thee my troth, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever a troth is. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it's so perfect that I little bits of me die every time i'm at a wedding where people are like i got a better idea i'm going to say some garbage i wrote on a napkin three weeks ago
2: (laughs) when people make up vows
1: i'm like i don't know if you can improve upon Cranmer.
2: okay if if we're (laughs) really gonna let let it fly like Let let it fly oftentimes when people write their own vows they're not vows they're just like things that like like you are so wonderful when you wake up in the morning, your breath doesn't stink. Um, like it's like they're usually statements; they're not vows. Um, yeah. And and that's at least yeah, that's an <laughs> interesting observation. It's accurate. Yeah, at least on TV shows and movies.
1: Yeah, but no, I've been you've been at weddings where this has happened. I mean, this is sure. This is this is the the the, yeah. the time we live in. Yeah, Christopher. So I mean, you brought up uh, the vernacular. Um, it's it's worth um making the point, um. How important this was to Cranmer and how much, uh, how much he pushed through how much resistance was just kind of uh, not, not just resistance but um, it was unthinkable. Um, uh, God spoke Latin. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, it was just a forgetting of course I mean we know now right Jerome St Jerome translated the Bible translated the Vulgate, so that the Romans could read it in their own language. right? Um,
2: and uh, so, yeah, it's, it is, it is it's interesting. It is interesting that that um, in America that some people, um, Roman Catholics, uh, have have like held up like the Latin Mass as like somehow you know this this kind of ideal thing. Yeah. Um, and, and and you know it's, it's like I well, know why they do. It's because it's, it's like not ruined by well, Vatican it's v- Jews, v- that's right, so that's sort right. of yeah, like
1: yeah. Gr- uh, gr- grubby, grubby. Pe- Grubby revisionists can't get, get their hands on Latin Mass because right. it's encased in glass, yeah. right? And then sure. if you know what it means, then sure. you're 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 faithfully yeah. worshiping in the manner of your mm-hmm. forefathers
2: in a way that's inoculated against really forefathers.
1: So I get that.
2: Starting the year that you know you know like it, but it's not like it's it's Latin was an a original lot of, thing. A lot yeah. of revision.
1: Yeah. I mean that like okay. So since this is the episode of truth telling like our 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 prayer books have been far more faithfully cared to than than the roman the roman rites like that those have undergone like a lot of hippie revisions that none of our prayer books would tolerate even our 79 prayer book um there's the one right the star wars right but then other than that <laughs> the others are are pretty
2: darn faithful that's that's some pretty inside <laughs> baseball though so let's let's circle back to cranmer
1: yeah so back back to uh, the vernacular christopher which that's i guess that's kind of what we're focusing on here um, by the king's order and this is all Kramer's doing a great bible was to be displayed in each parish and yeah. chained to a desk yes. so that no one could steal it or vandalize it and anyone could go in and read to it um, there are there are drawings sketches of the line that snaked through london the day that these were uh, opened in parishes um, this was a this was a, a great and remarkable thing um, the Great Litany in 1544 uh, was uh, the first English prayers said in church. Um, this would have been amazing for people to be praying together in, in their own tongue. Um, the New English Language Communion Rite uh, was said for the first time in Easter, Easter Sunday in 1548. Um, a year later in 1549, um, there's the first uh, prayer book in English. Um, so, And he pushed through intense um, resistance there was not just among the clergy. Uh, I don't know percentages. I don't I no longer remember percentages Christopher um, But amongst the lady there's an uprising in the West Country in Cornwall <laughs> Like peasants were burning stuff over this <laughs> um, And yet he pushed through um, he was enough of a visionary to see the long game mm. um, And and the fact is um, That the long game in the long game Cranmer uh the peculiar English brand of Protestantism and the Prayer Book One. Um, and uh, I'll say this. Um, Eamon Duffy, who is not a uh not an Anglican, he's a English Roman Catholic theologian and historian, um, notes at the end of his book um about the English Reformation. Um he notes that uh And I can't find, I had it, I had it marked, I can't find it. Um, He acknowledges, here it is, I found it, I found it. Duffy makes the melancholy observation of the power and prayer of the prayer book for English Christians, and I quote him, the conformity of the majority to the Elizabethan prayer book did not mean the end of traditional religion. Instead, slowly, falteringly, much reduced in scope, depth, and coherence, it reformed itself around the rituals and the words of the prayer book cranmer's somberly magnificent prose read week by week entered and possessed their minds and became the fabric of their prayers the utterance of their most solemn and their most vulnerable moments their weddings and their funerals so i think that is that is
2: high praise coming from someone who regrets cranmer's successes yeah. right yeah, Kirk, and and perhaps as I give my kind of con- conclusion uh, here, you can kind of th- have some time to think up yours. And, and my would be this: is is that we we've discussed in in the past the uh, the daily office, morning and evening prayer, and and just how ubiquitous that was in in English cultural life, um, and what an achievement it was um, to to. Return worship to the people, to like, uh, and and again, like th- kind of the 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 heart behind the the daily office, the simplification of morning and evening prayer is is that to say that like prayer is not something for monasteries. Have like, you prayer have is something you, that the people participate in?
1: Have you read the monkhood of all believers?
2: I haven't. I just listened that's...
1: to an interview um, of him yesterday. And um, he points to, he makes the exact same point that mm. you're making, which is Cramer turned all believers into monks with the daily mm. office,
2: but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that, that's my point is, is it along with kind of um, Sunday mornings um, and, and kind of returning the laity to, to the clarity of, of word and sacrament and, and participation and knowing what's happening and, and a lively faith um, uh, th- these daily um, motions of of morning and evening prayer of 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 and of course daily and evening the daily office includes readings and, and the psalms like that you go through the, the psalms either every month or every two months um uh, and, and so encountering the scripture and and this worship that we see um you know in in, in jane austen like every, you know in in mo- many of the novels you see people do uh sitting down for or evening prayer um, as a household, um, that, that what an achievement this was to take it and and return it from the monasteries to the people, um, not just on Sunday mornings, but but every day.
1: Yeah, I mean, it turned every house into a man- monastery. There yeah. were, in, in Austin's time, um, the great houses would, all the staff would be summoned, you know, to, to if it was wealthy enough, a chapel or to or to the living area for morning prayer and evening prayer. I mean, it was profoundly shaping to, generations of english-speaking people absolutely um i want to end with um just a brief summary and then reading very briefly from uh dearman mccullough's thomas Cranmer. um i want to read about the last day of his life um because this is profoundly affecting and the picture of a great grand noble christian death not noble because he was saintly and uh sanctified and brave, but noble because he wasn't, and yet died for Christ nonetheless. Um, Cranmer's confession of specific crimes, these were the crimes to which he confessed, Christopher. First, masterminding the divorce, that particularly rankled Rome and much of Europe, which had betrayed the spiritual welfare of Henry VIII, injured Catherine of Aragon, and had ushered in all manner of heresies. Also then the crime um, on denying the real presence in the Eucharist um, and for endangering the souls of the dead by the abolition of requiem masses. Um, so he abolished requiem masses. So um, English English Christians were no longer praying for souls in purgatory, which is fine because they're not there. Oh, (laughs) Um, okay. So March 21st, the day of his death, he was scheduled to preach a penitent sermon in public. Um, And he did. He preached it at the University Church in Oxford. Um, And he opened up the sermon. He had prepared remarks that had been vetted by proper ecclesiastical authorities so that they knew what he was going to say. So he didn't do something strange and go off script, which he did. (laughs) um he opened by asking the spectators to pray to god for the forgiveness of his sins um and uh the speech kind of went on as everyone thought uh, that even in this last day of his life uh kramer um kramer let's see here let me skip ahead through his sermon here what else does he say um he he appeals to the believers to love god love the crown love their neighbor um, he ends with, a, with an elaborate plea to the rich to avoid covetousness and to give generously to the poor. Um, Kramer, it's a, we, are, we read in other sources, he bowed low when he mentioned the king and queen, and tears welled up in his eyes, and he had trouble continuing. Um, after a recitation of the creed and his affirmation of the basics of the faith, he finally embarked on explaining, quote, the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience, um, and the authorities would have had the text in front of them that had been prepared, so they knew it was coming. They knew that he would denounce um, and recant of his, quote, untrue books and writings contrary to the truth of God's word. Um, in which he had said, the books which I wrote against the sacrament to the altar since the death of King Henry VIII, and then he would declare that he did believe, after all, in transubstantiation and would, uh, and would die reconciled with the church. Um, Suddenly, however, the listeners would have slowly begun to realizing that they were not hearing that. Um, Cranmer instead says this, these writings, which were written contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart and written for fear of death, consisted of all such bills and papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation, One version of this text Christopher uh, makes him, says he refers to the rumors which had gone through London about these papers. But at this point, it's now beginning becoming difficult for everyone to hear what's going on because the church begins to descend into commotion. Some are filled with joy. There are murmurs, (laughs) quiet murmurs of thank God as they realize that um, he had meant it all along. Um, Others are descending into rage and shouting Um, Yet through the hubbub, Cranmer raises his voice and begins to shout. It was vital to get two final points across. At this point, he is deadly pale, but a surge of energy takes away his tears. Quote, and as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. And you see, Christopher, he was back on his old course again. Lord Williams yelled out to him to ask him if he remembered what he was supposed to do. But Cranmer did not waste many words defying him. And then across the din, um, there floated his words, quote, And as for the sacrament, I believe, as I have taught in my book, against the Bishop of Winchester. And there the enraged official stopped him. It no longer mattered. He had thrown down his gauntlet and succeeded in his task. He was pulled from the pulpit in a scene immortalized in an engraving for John Day's 1563 edition of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And he was hurried out to the stake through the streets of Oxford. It would be a long entangled journey amid scenes of chaos, which means that it is possible to accept different accounts, both Fox's Books of Martyr and Cranmer's Recantations account of the various snatches of conversation along the way. Juan de Villa Garcia, um, he was a, um, a monk that was assigned to Cranmer's um, as his chaplain basically in these last days um, said uh, whom uh, let's see, I lost my spot whom according to JA and he must have been the Spanish friar whom Fox recorded as dazedly repeating over and over again, non fechiste, you didn't do it. <laughs> he just muttering to himself, non fechiste non fechiste like you didn't recant. The Catholic narrator records a more coherent exchange between Via Garcia and his victim. Via Garcia says bitterly that Cramner would have declared the Pope to be the head of the church if it would have saved his own head, and Cramner astonishingly agreed. Via Garcia browbeats him. He points out that on that same day he had confessed to a priest. What if the confession is no good? Cramner retorts contemptuously. The crowd arrives at the place where Latimer and Ridley had suffered six months before. Fires put to the wood. In the flames, Cranmer achieved a final serenity, and he fulfilled the promise which he had made his last shouts in the church. For as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished Therefore. He stretched it out into the heart of the fire for all the spectators to see. He repeated, while he still could, his unworthy right hand, this hand hath offended. And also, while he could, the dying words of the first martyr Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was soon very dead, says one account it was said that in the ashes of the fire his heart was found unburnt and the catholic narrative could do no more to destroy that story than to suggest that its condition was thanks to some form of heart disease Mm. and i'll stop there
2: shall we close in prayer let's close in prayer the lord be with you and with your spirit let us pray almighty god Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week. <laughs>